This morning's psalm is Psalm 1, and I would encourage you to open your Bible and turn to it now. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I believe you can find Psalm 1 on page 448. And as you turn there, I just want to take a moment to, say, to thank all of the children who put in pictures for me. I uh, came to my office, and there was this big stack of, of really creative and, and some, some really wonderful uh, pictures. All of them were good. You know, I, I didn't pick any favorites, but, but I definitely laughed a little bit. And, uh, and they prove that the kids in our church are, one, good artists, and they, they have great imaginations. Uh, so that was an encouragement, and, and thank you to all the children who, who did that. Uh, being that this is the first psalm, Psalm 1, it serves as an introduction to the rest of the book of Psalms. But, but as we will see this morning, as we make our way through it, Psalm 1 could just as much serve as, as something like an introduction to the entire Bible as it lays out a fundamental biblical reality, a basic truth that's taught throughout the Bible, one that is essential to understand. It's even found within the very gospel of Jesus Christ. What is this truth? That there are only two groups of people. Now, to know what these two groups are, are I want us to read God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, and I think you will see very quickly what these two groups are. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word to his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now, let us pray for help in these things. God, God of heaven, God of earth, the maker and creator of all things, we praise you this morning. Whatever, whatever condition our hearts were in when we walked into this sanctuary, you are God. And whatever we need, you can and you will provide to your people. And so we have come to the right place. We have come to hear you speak through your word. And we want to hear you speak, Father. We need to hear you speak. We need you, our Father in heaven, to direct our hearts, to remind us of the truth, to, to settle our weary hearts. Father, you are a great God. You have revealed this to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came, who lived, who died, and you raised from the dead by the power of your Spirit. So we have come to worship you, to submit to you, to, to be directed by you, to, to have our hearts corrected and convicted and strengthened and refreshed. And we ask, Father, that you would meet with us. And we're confident that you will because having read your word, having confessed as, as believers, as a church, that, that the gospel is true, you are continually showing yourself as willing and more than capable of providing all that we need in Christ. 
Father, we do confess that we continue to struggle with sin. I know that, that sin is a beast in my life, and I need to continue to fight against it with the power of the gospel, trusting in you to, to work about my holiness. And, and as we work together as a church and we strive for, for gospel clarity and we seek to make disciples and, and we want to treasure Christ above all, the reality is that there is sin among us. We battle against it. Not other people's sin, first and foremost, our own sin. And so we confess, Father, that we have sinned in word, thought, in action. And we need Christ, and we need his atoning work, and thankfully, he has paid the price for our sin. And Father, the reality is that there are some among us that do not believe the gospel, who are, who are under your wrath, who are enemies of the cross. And Father, we pray that this morning even, we're, we're always hopeful that this will be the day that some enter into your kingdom. And so we pray, Father, that they would see their need for a Savior and they would trust in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would be with those who are suffering and struggling. We especially think of those brothers and sisters who are battling cancer, who are, who are wrestling with the news that, that cancer has returned or cancer might be there and they're waiting on test results or they've heard the news and it's not what they had hoped. We pray, Father, that they would cling to Christ and we know that you will cling to them, that even in their struggle and their suffering and their hardships and in the days ahead, they will see your providential care in their lives and they will look to you, and they will make much of Christ. We pray for family members and friends of those who are, who are struggling and suffering, that, that within the believers going through the, the hardships, they would see a powerful and mighty thing, that you are at work in their lives, holding and keeping and strengthening them, even as they suffer and face hardships and sorrow, that the gospel will be on display, on display through your people. Father, we give you Thanks for all of your blessings. Many of them we do not even see. The way that you do not give us what we ask for because it is not what is best for us. The way you provide in, in wonderful and, and amazing ways for our needs. And now we ask, Father, as I so often do, that you would overcome the deficiencies in me, that you would use your powerful and beautiful and precious and clear and sharp word to cut through hearts, and you would do what only you can do, strengthen the weak, Convict the sinful and unrepentant. Increase our joy and our gladness in you, our God and our greatest treasure. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in Psalm 1, we see that despite all of our differences, and, and if, we, if we laid out all of our differences as people, we could come up with many lists and many different categories of people, Despite all of these things, according to God's word, there are only these two groups of people, ultimately. Yes, I, I want to recognize the beauty in God's diversity. It's wonderful that he has created male and female, that he has created, uh, he has created people from, from different backgrounds, that he has given us different cultures. It's all wonderful and beautiful when it's seen rightly as a gift from God, and it doesn't divide us when we shouldn't divide. But the reality is that according to Scripture, there are ultimately only two groups of people. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. So despite all of our differences, God puts us into two different groups, two different categories, the righteous and the wicked. And we all fit into one of these two groups. We also learn in Psalm 1 how both of these groups will live their lives, what they are like, and, and how things will end for those in each group. Friends, it matters which group we are in. There is a right group and a wrong group, a blessed group and a cursed group. 
Despite what some believe, all paths don't lead to the same place. One path will lead us to eternal life, and the other path will lead us to eternal death. So this morning, I I want to encourage all of us to consider which of these two groups we are in, what path we are on. If you're on the right path, well, as you make your way through this psalm, you'll find comfort. You'll find encouragement. You'll be refreshed by God's promises. If you're on the wrong path, well, you will receive a gracious, beautiful, helpful warning from the God of mercy and grace. So there's something for you, no matter where you are coming from this morning, whatever group you are in this morning, you will be comforted and encouraged, or you will be warned and reminded of who you are and what you need. The psalm begins by comparing the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. If the name of the groups didn't make it clear enough as to which group you want to be in, well, the very first word in verse 1 makes it quite obvious. That word is blessed. Blessed is the man who is in the righteous group. Blessed is the woman, the boy, the girl, the child who is among the righteous. Friends, this is what you want. You want to be blessed. You you want joy. You want to to be truly happy. You want to experience goodness. You, You desire favor. And it's not wrong to want to be blessed. Certainly, we, we shouldn't want the opposite. We, we shouldn't want to be cursed. We, we, we shouldn't want to, uh, to experience suffering and hardship in life. The Bible teaches us that the triune God who needs nothing created the world and everything in it, including us, in order to bless, to bless his name, to bless his creation, to bless a people. So it's right, and we should desire to be blessed. Now, I'm not going to go off on a, on a tangent and, and, and attack the prosperity gospel. It, it's been attacked plenty of times from this pulpit and within this church. But, but when we talk about blessing, we're not talking, and we'll see this, about material blessing. We're not talking about having a great retirement plan and, and really just thriving in, with material things. Now, sometimes the Lord blesses us with those things, but, but that's not the blessing that is being spoken of. So back on the rails, and we've, we've, we've gotten off. Off that trail and we've gotten back onto where we are this morning. I want you to consider how sweet this should sound to all who hear it. There is a way, friends, to be blessed. There is a way to experience goodness and favor from God. This psalm teaches us there's real hope for happiness in a world that is full of suffering. There, that true joy, eternal joy is possible Despite the suffering, the hardships, and the trials that we face in life, there is a path to blessing. There's a path to blessing. And this is good news from God to man. We don't have to embrace the emptiness and the the hopelessness of a secular, atheistic worldview. We, We don't have to wonder if blessing is possible. The hope is right here in Psalm 1. For every heart that longs for blessing, for joy, for favor, for goodness, well, it's true God has said it. Man, woman, child can be blessed. Verses 1 and 2 put before us the the two ways that people pursue blessing or or the two ways that, that people can live in pursuit of blessing. The first way which does not lead to blessing is the path of the wicked. The second way which leads to blessing is the path of the righteous. And so they're put before us in, in, in negative and positive terms. This is in accordance with the gospel. There is only one path to true and lasting blessing. 
in a fallen world that opposes God, a world in which all of us are born sinners who rebel against God and naturally reject God's word. And that's the reality, that even, even those who grow up in the church and, and, and are forced to come to church because their children and their parents say, we're going to church, we're a, a, a church-going family. Well, inwardly, even as that child outwardly seems to submit to their, their parents' authority and, and maybe even at times seems to enjoy church, especially when the pastor says, take out a piece of paper and draw a picture and put it in the offering. Well, inwardly, what's going on in that child's heart or anybody's heart who is not a Christian is rebellion, is rejection. We don't naturally receive and accept and submit to the word of the Lord. So we don't like to, to hear that there's only one way, according to God, to be blessed. We love the buffet style of spirituality. We want our options open. I'll try, I'll try Hinduism. I'll try Buddhism. I'll try uh, Islam. I'll try you know, ancient Judaism, Second Temple Judaism. I'll try atheism. I'll try you know, my best life now, whatever. I, we'll, we'll try all these options. We'll, we'll come together with a plan, and then we'll say, well, well all paths lead to something and, and ultimately joy, so we'll go over. That, that, that doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. So even if we want, and many of us struggle with this, we want all paths to lead to blessing. We want to think that in the end, everyone, or at least the people that we love, or maybe even the people that we like, will be blessed. That's just not true. Jesus said so in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I mean, so we see a parallel here with Psalm 1. There's a whole big path, and so many people are on it, and it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to blessing, and, there, and that path is easy. And there's another path, and it's narrow, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and yet it leads to life. It leads to blessing. The psalmist tells us about the wide and easy road that leads to destruction, that, that many are traveling down. But not the blessed man. He, he takes another path. Look again at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seat, sits in the seat of scoffers. So the righteous live very differently than the wicked. They don't live like the rest of the world. Now, oftentimes, we Christians, we want to we kind of say, we're just like you. In, in a way, we are. <laughs> we're sinners in need of a Savior that happen to have been on the other side of the cross. We've been saved by God's grace. So there, there is this reality that, that we're not better than, we're not more than, we're not, we're not outside of God's special saving grace. We're not, we're not more important than any other being that was created in God's image. And yet we are different. <laughs> Because God has chosen to save us and rescued us and redeemed us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's going to change how we live. And, and we also see in this passage, not only that, that the, the righteous live differently than the wicked, but, but that there is a, a real progression into wickedness. That it, that it doesn't just happen right away, that, that there's this progression. Even as, as we're born sinners who choose to sin, there's this progression into wickedness for the wicked. First they walk, and then they stand, and then they sit. I mean, just picture that. They're kind of entertaining things. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, why don't you keep on talking? Tell me, tell me more about this philosophy that rejects the God of the Bible. It's, okay, I want to, I'm interested. You know, it's really good to keep my options open. And yes, I, I, I profess to be a believer, but I, I'll walk with you, person who rejects the gospel, and, and, and entertain these ideas. And then now they're standing there. They're not walking. They're, yeah, tell me more. 
then all of a sudden they're sitting down and that's them. That's where they live. That's who they are. And so it begins when someone takes the counsel of the wicked. That's what walking in the counsel of the wicked describes. When a person begins to entertain the ideas and beliefs of those who oppose God and reject the Bible. Now I'm all for the Bible standing up against every single philosophical and argument that all those who reject the Bible can throw against it. The problem is not with the Bible when we, we, when we come to a conflict with Scripture. The problem is with our understanding. So I'm not one to, to dismiss or say, hey, we, we shouldn't uh, do apologetics. I love apologetics. I listen to apologists. I appreciate apologists. It's, it's good. But, but here's the reality. There's a difference between coming from a position where this book is the final authority and it's always right, and I believe it, to taking this book down from the position of authority and putting it side by side and saying it's equal to whatever else somebody's bringing to the table. It's not. As a Christian, this is the final authority. When, when this and me have something, uh, have a disagreement, this book always wins. And so that, that's the difference here in, in entertaining and embracing philosophy and, and, and ideas that reject the God of the Bible, who, uh, ideas and, and thoughts that, that are man-made. So it's listening to those who say that the God of the Bible is a myth, that he's not the creator, that they aren't sinners in need of a savior, that, that they are good enough people on their own. It's, it's entertaining the idea, even thinking about it and then saying maybe that's true, that Jesus is just a crutch for the weak and ignorant people in the world. That a person can be blessed by having the things of the world. That joy comes to those who work hard for it. That happiness can be bought. That fame will satisfy. That a relationship will fulfill your soul. That if you are successful in life, you'll be blessed. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to hear these things and things like them and then begin to like them and embrace them. It's, it's, it comes from so many different avenues, different ways, different terms, different phrases. But, but in some way, shape, or form, it's, it's beginning to really allow these ideas to shape us. Next, to stand in the way of sinners is to live one's life in accordance with the wicked beliefs that they've embraced. A sinner describes someone who's rejecting God's law, has broken God's commandment, who is ignoring their creator and his right to rule and judge them. To stand in the way of sinners is, is to live a sinful life. It's, it's, it's to be, and not just hanging out with sinners so you can evangelize them and share the gospel with them. It's to be all in with the sinners who reject the God of the Bible. Lastly, to sit in the seat of scoffers is to be all in with depravity. To not just embrace wrong ideas and live a sinful life, it's to ridicule and mock God. The scoffer hears of Christ's sinless life his sin-atoning death, and his life-giving resurrection, and they laugh. They think it's silly. They respond to the, the gospel call to repent and turn to Christ with anger and contempt and hatred. They, they treat all the winsome, loving, sweet Christians in their life as if they're the, the, the mean, angry, so-called Christians who hold up signs and scream, repent or you're going to hell as they walk into a, a sporting event or a show as if the same tone is coming from all of us who are seeking to winsomely and lovingly share the gospel of God's grace. Scoffers are comfortable, and, and they even enjoy their sin. They openly rebel against God. They, they become the wicked ones who counsel others to walk the same path that they have walked away from God and further into sin. You know what scoffers are? They are evangelists for Satan, leading others into the way of destruction. 
So, so friends, I, I want you to, to remember where the progression into wickedness begins. It begins with the counsel of the wicked. And, and then I want you to consider this. What is being taught today? I'm not going to go on some rant where it doesn't go anywhere here. So bear with me if at first you, you think, okay, I've heard this before on Fox News or on some other program, okay? Uh, no diss to all those who, who listen and, and love Fox News. Um, maybe there's a little bit of yeah, something there. But, um, but just bear with me, and I, I think you'll see ultimately where I'm going. Consider what is being taught today, not just in colleges and universities, but in so many high schools and elementary schools. I mean, probably in preschools now. There is no absolute truth. There is no authority. There is no gender. There is no morality. Embrace and accept everyone and everything, well, except for Jesus and the Bible. That's, that's the message, really. We see it in so many ways and in so many different avenues. Consider also what is being communicated in so many of the most popular movies and shows and books, that happiness comes from following your heart. That's not what the Bible says. Happiness comes from following Jesus. Jesus, not your heart. But that's the message that we're hearing. That's the message our children, and not just our children, all of us are hearing over and over and over again. And some of us are just getting hit with that, hit with that, and the wall is crumbling against this message, and we're starting to embrace it. We're being told that, that we should be open to new and unholy things that were not too long ago considered harmful and shameful, even by non-Christians. This is the counsel of the wicked. And it's being preached to us from all over the place. It's in our schools. It's coming from Hollywood. It's becoming the mindset of companies, of sports teams. This is the fad. This is the cool thing, the, the bus to jump on. Embrace all of these ideas and beliefs and put them into practice. And so we Christians need to guard our hearts and minds. We need to be discerning. And I'm not just talking to the children and young people. Yes, of course, those who are most formidable by this culture and who have, who are, who have been growing up with this mindset. I remember when, when so much of this stuff was, was not really around. I didn't hear about it. And now my, my nine-year-old son is very familiar with these things that I learned about in high school. And he's been familiar with them for quite some time because of the world and the culture that he's been born into. So I'm talking to everybody here when I say, be careful, guard your heart and your mind with scripture. We can easily become prideful, overconfident, begin playing with worldliness, thinking that we're strong enough to, to take the world's best and deal with it. Well, in Christ, and if we're believing the gospel, and this is our authority, the word of God, then, then yes. But when we're not, when we're, we're just off on our own saying, saying we can handle this, well, well we're, we're going to fall. We're going to compromise our beliefs. We're going to begin to entertain the ideas of the world. And if you do, it's only a matter of time before you take your seat among the scoffers. And sadly, not just as a pastor, but in my 15 years of following Christ, I've seen this. I've seen it in college friends that once were part of a ministry that sought to, to, to share the gospel on a, on a non-Christian campus in Wisconsin. I've seen it in this church with people who once professed and, and got up on this stage and said things about Jesus that got everybody excited and have now rejected everything that they once proclaimed. And how did it begin? Ultimately, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who saves. Some of these people will come back and we pray for that. Many of us are praying for that even today, for, for these people to see the, their sinfulness and return. But on a human level, how did it happen? 
because they entertained and embraced the ideas of the world and they set aside the Bible. There are many examples of people like this in scripture as well. There's Judas who became an agent of Satan when he betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He was there. He was one of the disciples. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He said he was a follower. And then worldly thinking got in. And and yes, we know the prophecies and it was a fulfillment of prophecy. But he was entertaining the ideas of the world and and eventually he gave in. And then there's Demas who who Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4.10 as a man who once professed to believe the gospel, served alongside the apostle Paul only to fall in love with the present world and abandon the gospel and gospel ministry. So it happens. It happens. The blessed man or woman does not go down that path. What do they do instead? Well, verse 2 tells us, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's his path. It's not the world's way. It's God's way. It's Scripture. And so there's a progression here as well. The way of blessing starts with the Word of God. The righteous are those who hear the Word of God and embrace it. And obey it. They are, they are the good soil that Jesus speaks of in Mark 4.20, who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. For the blessed God's word, his law is not boring. It's exciting. It's not burdensome. It's light. His law is beautiful. Because we're not under condemnation, we're under grace. We have a Savior who fulfilled the law for us. He didn't abolish the law, he fulfilled it for us. God's people love God's word because it gives them knowledge of God. That's why they delight in it. They love God and it reveals God from God's own voice, his own word. It's his mouth. Instead of following the world, they follow God's word, which leads to blessing. The righteous turn to God's word throughout the day and at night because they need God's word. They don't just want it. They need God's word. They wake up with God on their mind and they go to bed resting in the comfort of God's promises as revealed in scripture. They turn to God's word for direction and guidance, for help, for truth. And so there's this real intimate connection between the the Bible and the righteous man or woman or child. There's no way around it. And I know many of us struggle with with reading, with studying the Bible, but here's the deal. There's an intimate connection in Scripture between the righteous man and the Bible. And so whatever limits God has given us, whatever struggles we have, this is the reality. The Bible matters to the righteous. And not just as something you set aside and say, yep, that's my Bible. That's cool. i got to have it. You know, that's my sword, and so I just pull it out for show. No, this is precious truth. This is God's word. The Bible gives the righteous their worldview. It shapes their ideas, their thoughts, their opinions, their attitude, their heart, their character, their language, their tongue, because that's the power of God's word in those who hear it, receive it, and delight in it. It shapes the righteous. It sanctifies them. It makes them more like Christ. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I I just reference this not because it's the only passage, or maybe even the best passage to reference here, but because of the, the, the language here of the power of the word at work in people. The blessed man or woman can't help but delight in the law of the Lord because they love God who is the author of Scripture. You can't say, I love God, and I, I, I don't love the Bible. 
That's like me telling my wife, hey, I love you, Amy, but I don't want to hear you talk. Husbands, don't you dare say something like that to your wife. I'm not even joking. I've, I've, I've heard of husbands that do that, that think they have the ability to just diss their wife and put them in their place. You know where their place is? Above you. And just, just think about that, that husband who has that attitude towards his wife. Christ laid down his life for his bride. And now think about speaking that way to God. God, I love you. I'm so thankful that you sent your son, but I have no desire to hear you speak to me. I have no desire to hear your word preached to me. I have no desire to meditate on your word day and night. That's for other people. How dare you, Christian, think that way? It's wrong. It doesn't fit with scripture. Husbands and wives, and it goes both ways. We're to, we're to be like Christ, husbands, laying down our lives. And wives, you are to submit to your, your husband's leadership and trusting in the Lord. And obviously that has, has you know, some parameters there, but that's the reality. And so if you love God, you will love his word. <laughs> they don't just want to hear God's word, the righteous. They need God's word. Think of, of what our Lord and Savior said when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4. 4. And church, this is to be true of us. We are to follow our Lord's example, to live by the word of God. This is what it looks like to delight in God's word. So friend, do you delight in God's word? I'm not saying that you're the best at reading it as much as you should. I think every Christian uh, asked, you know, are you reading your Bible? We'll, we'll say, uh, not as much as I should. Not as much as I'd like. I'm not asking that. I'm saying, do you delight in it? Do you love hearing it? Do you enjoy hearing the scriptures read to you and preached to you? Do you, do you want to read the Bible? I'm not, I'm not saying do you. I'm saying, do you want to? Do you is, is another thing. And we won't go too far into that, but, but we can. We, we need to make the time. If you value something, you'll make time for it. Do you meditate on God's word? This doesn't refer to some mystical experience where you, you, you lock yourself into a closet and you have just you alone time with God. It, it, it's the person who seeks to know and understand and apply and obey God's word. If not, then whose counsel are you really taking? Who's leading you along the way? What path are you on? Because you're not on the right path. You're, you've wandered. As many of you know, I have a great appreciation for John Bunyan who was a, a 17th century Reformed Baptist who uh, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And so I've recommended, I've used different, uh, almost every week I'm like, ooh, that reminds me of The Pilgrim's Progress or that passage because, well, one, it's just full of scripture. Uh, but, but Bunyan was a man who delighted in God's word and meditated on it day and night. And, and I want to share Charles Spurgeon's description of John Bunyan. So I have two of my, my heroes of the faith and one's talking about the other. Read anything of his, referring to Bunyan, and you will see that it is almost like the reading of the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. 
He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. What a powerful description of the relationship that the blessed man has with God's word, an example for us to follow. Church, may we aim to bleed Bible. Having been justified by God's grace and no longer under condemnation, may we see the Lord's law as good and beautiful and not have a problem with being sanctified or talk of holiness. One of the greatest signs that we have genuinely been converted that the Spirit of God has brought us to life and it's not just a man, man-made work is that we are, and that we are truly growing in grace is that we love the Word of God. It's the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who raised us from the dead, who has given us the Word of God. The righteous man is a Bible man, and the righteous woman is a Bible woman. And it's the word of God that leads them on the narrow path that leads to blessing. Last week, we we were in in Psalm 23, and we we drew from that metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. And I want to remind you of that. We are prone to wander. Even as we walk on the path of blessing, we're prone to wander. What is bringing us back? How is God at work bringing us back? Yes, by his Spirit, but also his word. His spirit says, listen, wake up. Where are you going? Where are you headed? And his word gives us the direction that we need. In verses three and four, we are given a description of both the righteous and the wicked. The righteous or the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The metaphor God gives us here of the righteous is is one of a thriving, well-supplied, healthy, fruit-bearing tree. This description doesn't promise that the righteous will not suffer, that that nothing bad will happen to them. The rest of the book of Psalms makes this clear. Sometimes, as we've seen painfully clear, God's people will experience suffering. But what this description does not teach us is that the righteous man or woman, like a tree that is planted by streams of water, will be supplied by God with all that they need to make it through the difficulties and trials of life. It reminds us, church, that God is the one who plants us. We didn't plant ourselves. God planted us. He chose us. He put us where we need to be. We can trust his, his providential care in our lives. God provides streams of living water so that our souls are fed and and we have what we need to not just survive, but to grow in Christ and to produce God-glorifying fruit. The righteous man and, and the righteous woman who delight in God's word, who meditate on God's law, like a tree planted by streams of water, will bear the fruit of love. Love for God, love for God's people, and love for the lost. They will bear the fruit of joy because of God's grace and mercy to them in Christ. Yes, even as they suffer and they struggle, there's this sense of, of, wow, I'm so joyous. Not because of the suffering, not because of the cancer, not because, uh, because this person has just died, but because of the grace and mercy of God in Christ to me. So there's joy being produced in the Christian, the righteous The righteous will bear the fruit of peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. They will produce patience as they trust in God during difficult times and wait on the Lord. The the righteous will produce kindness towards others and extend grace to those who don't deserve it. They will demonstrate the gentleness of Christ and they will be marked by the fruit of self-control. These fruits which come in their proper season and many others will be found in the life of the righteous. It's there. You can see it. 
Even the non-Christians say, yeah, there's, there's something going on right there in that person. They're bearing fruit. The Christian's leaf will not wither. I love that language in the psalm. Even in times of drought, the righteous will display their beauty and often even more beauty than ever before. Consider the Christians that you and I know who have or are right now battling through great hardships, through cancer, through, through loss, or those Christians who are physically frail and of very old age that are delighting in and meditating on God's word. They have not lost their shine. Far from it. Their spiritual strength, their godliness is intact. And, and many of us are seeing it now in their lives more than we've ever seen it in their lives before. As a pastor, I have the privilege of seeing this pretty much weekly. People suffering, going through hardships, their bodies breaking down, and yet they have not withered spiritually. They're shining. Their beautiful faith is on display. God is providing for them. Their leaves have not withered in the droughts, the trials, the troubles have only made it more obvious that they have been planted and are being nourished by God. And all that the righteous do, they prosper, the psalm tells us. What a blessing to read that in God's word. What a comfort. What a promise. What we do, Christians, will prosper. Now, we, we won't always see exactly how the Lord fulfills this promise. Uh, think of, of the old and childless Abraham who was promised not only a son, but that one day his descendants would, out, would number as many as the stars in the sky. He believed God, but he didn't see all of it happen in his life. He held his own son in his old age, even though his wife had been barren. So he saw some of it, but, but he trusted that God would fulfill his promise, that, that the Lord would prosper his efforts and his work and bless his faith, even though he wouldn't see it all happen. Sometimes we will have to wait many, many years, decades even, to see how the Lord prospers our work. Sometimes we'll have to wait until eternity. But the work of the righteous will prosper. Your efforts, Christian, will not be in vain. It makes me think of, and, and, and I'm going to go a little bit into a story here. I think I have enough time and it's worth sharing. Um, it's not in my notes because I didn't think I had enough time, but I, I think I do, so I'll share it. Um, it makes me think of a man named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was an Anglican pastor in the late 1700s and, and the, into the, the mid-1800s, and he was an evangelical Christian. And some of you might not like that term, but by that term, I mean he believed the Bible, he proclaimed the gospel, he called people to repent and trust in Christ. The Bible was his authority. And at the time, to be an evangelical uh, Christian, much less a, an evangelical minister in the Church of England, was very unpopular. Politically, it was, it, was political, it was career suicide, but Charles Simeon didn't care. He was converted as a freshman in college from dead religion, and, and so he was appointed at a church, and when he got there, the, the membership rejected him. They, 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 they said, we don't want this evangelical, because at the time, people went to church to hear stories, to uh, be entertained, and for political purposes, to, to, to be good people in the society. And, and so here's Charles Simeon, appointed to a, a church in Cambridge. Uh, his, 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 he went to Cambridge. This is his college town. This is his, his, his area. And uh, at the time, something very interesting uh, you might not know about is that, they, that if you were wealthy enough, you could buy your own pew in the church. And so you could buy your pew, and, and it came with a key and a lock. 
And, and so you were the one that would sit in there and you would unlock it and sit there with your family. And if you had friends or a special guest, you could, you could allow them to sit in your pew. Well, the membership rejected Simeon, but they couldn't get him out of there the way, the way the structure, the polity of the Church of England was and, and still is. They couldn't just get rid of him. So he went there and he preached, but, but the members of the church didn't go and they locked their pews so nobody could sit in them. And so for 10 years, that's the, the intensity that, that Simeon experienced. And yet people kept on coming and he would rent chairs. He was a poor pastor, not well provided for. Uh, I am, and I thank you, church. Uh, but, but he would rent chairs on his own dime, and he would put them uh, in, in, in between the pews. And people, especially poor people and young people, would come in, and he would preach to them. And the church warden, something like deacons, would come in and take the chairs out and throw them in the street. And then the people would just stand. And so Charles Simeon preached the gospel and was committed to the word of God for 10 years and saw very, very little fruit. And then there's a season of blessing where he saw young people, college students, trust in Christ. And many, many of them were influential in the church and would be discipled by Simeon, and some even became pastors. But for 54 years, Charles Simeon stayed in that church, preached the gospel, and his whole life, pretty much, in that church, he experienced great pushback and disagreement, and people, a large portion of the membership rejected him. And yet... He was faithful, and he did not see much of the fruit of his labors. Here's Charles Simeon's lasting legacy. Many of the preachers that he sent out into the poorest neighborhoods, into the poorest pulpits, were very, very productive. He never preached in some of those pulpits, but people that he trained up and, and taught and discipled, and even some of that he led to Christ, he sent into those pulpits. And some of the poorest people in, in, uh, in Britain got to hear the gospel from his disciples. And, and not only that, but there are two trusts, two, two ministries that exist today that are, that are named after him that continue to raise up preachers and teachers of God's word. Simeon didn't see much of that fruit, but the Lord prospers. The Lord prospers the work of the righteous always. So you children and you high school and you college students who are evangelizing your friends and family, continue and trust that the Lord is at work. You moms and dads seeking to point your children to Christ who are disciplining your children with the gospel and seeing very little fruit in their lives right now, continue. You singles who are trusting in and waiting on the Lord, continue. You married Christian men and women fighting against your sin and serving your spouse, continue. Even when it's really hard and you don't think it's working, continue. Christian battling daily against despair, against cancer, all those who are laboring to exalt Christ, who see little to no fruit today, God's word says that what we do in faith will in some way, shape, or form prosper. It will prosper. We don't know how. I don't know how it's all going to play out, but, but God tells us this. It will prosper, and God's word is true. But then there are the wicked, described in verse 4 as being like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff refers to, to the portion of, of the stem and the husks that are attached to the grain when it's harvested. So the farmer goes in the field, they harvest it, they, they leave as much as they can of, of what they don't need of the, 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 the stock, but they collect the top portion where the grain is. And then a farmer tosses the harvested grain into the air on a, hopefully a, a, a slightly windy day, and they toss it over and over again up into the air. And, and as they do, the chaff, so the stem of, of, the, uh, of the harvested grain, 
And the, the husk of the grain begins to break loose from the grain. And over and over again, as they do that, eventually the chaff, which is lighter, begins to drift away in the wind. And all that's left on the ground below is the grain. Well, the Bible tells us that the wicked are like this. They are like the bits and the pieces of the harvest that need to be removed. Consider these two metaphors side by side. The righteous are like a tree that produces fruit, and the wicked are like the worthless chaff that blows away in the wind. They're both agricultural. They're they're chosen for a reason in God's wisdom to give us this clear example. So you know what chaff is good for? It's good for kindling. That's about it. It's good for kindling. And in Luke 3.17, when John the Baptist speaks of God's coming judgment, he speaks of this very thing. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And this, friends, is the end of the wicked. This is where all the paths of the wicked lead. It's ultimately just one wide path, an easy path. As the psalm makes clear in the final two verses, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. What does that mean? They will not make it through God's judgment. They, they will face God's judgment and they will not make it through that judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, meaning they will not enter into eternal life. They will not join the righteous in glory with God, that heavenly company that praises God for all of eternity. They won't be there for the way of the wicked will perish. Hell is where their path ends. For the righteous will prosper, the wicked will perish. That's the end. That's the result. The, there's two paths. One leads to blessing, to prosper, And one leads to cursing and perish, and they will perish. The blessed man is the Christian, the one who delights in God and his word, who hears the gospel, believes the gospel, clings to the hope of the gospel. The wicked are are those who go the way of the world, who reject God's son, who, who don't repent and trust in Christ. And every single one of us in this room fits into one of these two groups. But for some of us, it it almost feels prideful, doesn't it, to say that we are in the righteous group. We're the righteous ones. That we are the blessed man or blessed woman. It almost sounds and seems prideful because we know that at times we have walked in the counsel of the wicked. We have stood in the way of sinners in various ways, at various times, and to varying degrees. We have sat in the seat of scoffers. I remember those days, going to the parties and sitting there and, and mocking those who, who were going to church the next morning. So how can people like us really be described as the righteous and the blessed who are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, who prospers in all that we do? Well, it's only because of the blessed man who blesses man. It's only because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to to rescue wicked men and women, making them righteous before God. Jesus Christ never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Jesus Christ never stood in the way of sinners. Jesus Christ never sat in the seat of scoffers. And so you see verses 1 through 3 describe Jesus to a T. To a T. Jesus delights in God's law. He always has, always will, always did. Jesus is the word of God in flesh. Jesus bore God-glorifying fruit like no one else ever has or ever will. Jesus lived a God-exalting, sinless life, and then he laid down his life at the cross. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God sent his blessed son into the world to bless man. 
And so as much as Psalm 1 serves as an introduction to the Psalms, it can just as much serve as an invitation to the blessed life. An invitation to all sinners to see and embrace the, by faith the blessed man who blesses man, Jesus Christ. So that is, that is what I want to do this, this morning. I encourage all of you here to consider which group you are truly in. You can't fake it with God. Remember, the word of God is sharp. It cuts through your lies and your deceitfulness. You can't fake Christianity. You can't fake regeneration with God. But Christian, you should take heart. You are on the right path. Even as so many you see get on the wide path and they're all in and they seem to be experiencing joy and blessing, it's the wrong path. You are on the right path by God's grace. You are on the pathway to blessing. And to the rest of you who are not trusting in Christ, well, I invite you to the blessed life. The blessed life. That comes not by your works, not by your being good enough, not by you working hard enough, not by the things of this world. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the glory of the gospel. That the blessed man, the truly blessed man, came and gave up his life to bless men and women and children who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And all who do trust in him, all who repent and believe the gospel will be blessed because of it. Let's pray. Oh God, we do at times, and I think it's okay, struggle with calling ourselves the righteous ones because we know our sin. We know our past, and we know that you know our past, and yet your word is clear. We are the righteous ones, those of us who are in Christ. Because of his righteousness, we have been declared righteous by you, a holy, perfect, sinless God who sent his Son and so help those in this, in this sanctuary who are Christians who struggle with that thought that they are indeed the righteous ones who are working through, by faith, through the power of, of your spirit working in them, their own sanctification, who are young or immature believers and really struggle with the thought of them being in the righteous group. You have done the work. Your son gets the glory. May you refresh and strengthen and bless those Christians who struggle with that thought that they are the righteous ones. And those of us who don't struggle with it as much, may we be humbled this morning and amazed by your grace, knowing that we deserve to perish. By our works, we have proven over and over again throughout our lives even after you have justified us, that we do not deserve one good thing from you. And yet it is by your grace, for your glory, that you have made us your righteous ones. So I pray that you would encourage and comfort and bless the believer in this sanctuary. Bless this church with these truths that we are the righteous ones by grace through faith in Christ. And Father, we pray for those in this place and in our lives and in our community and in the world who are wicked, who like we used to be are, are taking the counsel of the world, who are standing with sinners, who are scoffers. May our hearts be soft and kind and winsome towards these people who are, apart from your sovereign saving grace, headed towards destruction. And may we be confident because your word tells us that some of those who, like us, are, are, were wicked— will one day join the righteous and be, be glad with that promise. May it fuel us as a church to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, and to treasure Christ above all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.